The CDC recently voted to include COVID-19 vaccines in the vaccine schedule for kids. Not too long ago, Pfizer-gate was trending on Twitter, with many clips of health officials, politicians, and this random guy, Bill Gates, telling everyone that vaccines stop transmission of the virus. Only to have a recent video of a Pfizer official say they never even tested the vaccines for stopping transmission. Let's take a trip down memory lane and see how people were treated who didn't follow the science in all its twists, turns, and U-turns, especially how Christian leaders in big evangelicalism actually treated Christians who didn't choose to follow the science. All this and more on today's Solomon's Corner podcast. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. If this is your first time here, it's because this is our first video. So I have my coffee mug because it's late at night because we had a rough go trying to get everything set up, but we should be good. Also, don't forget to get onto our book club at solomonscorner.com forward slash book club, and you might be the lucky winner of one of 10 of A Strange Habit of Mind. We pre-ordered them, so I think they're going to be hardback, which is pretty legit. And we also might be throwing in a couple of these beauties. Check this out. A little, maybe a couple custom pens. We'll see. I don't know if it'll be this one, but we definitely might send some to some of our followers as a thank you for participating. So make sure you like, share, and spread the word about a new podcast out there on the interwebs, Solomon's Corner. And we are a place for thinkers. And if you haven't heard of it, just as another little FYI, this little book here, The Intellectual Life, this is what we're based on. This is what we try to get people to live and uh, essentially trying to get people to be better thinkers. Uh, and help you understand you don't have to have a PhD to do it. That doesn't mean we won't bring on PhDs. You know, we're not biased, but, you know, that's that's what we try to do. So, thanks for joining us. I want to show you guys this clip from Majid Nawaz. Love that guy. He's very solid on the, all the fun things. He, this is a clip of a, a British news anchor who is defending her position against the COVID vaccines during the pandemic. And the way that these news anchors treat her, I think, is something that everyone can probably relate with that was at least skeptical of the vaccines initially. So um, are you ready? All right, so roll that clip. This, this jab is not a vaccine by any traditional definition. It doesn't stop you catching SARS-CoV-2. It doesn't stop you transmitting it. There's a little bit of evidence to suggest that it might minimize transmission, but that's because it ameliorates your symptoms. And if it ameliorates your symptoms, then you are less likely Could to Because you argue it it's no different than getting vaccinated against hepatitis, for example. It's also, it's very different because it's a trial drug. We are still in clinical trials, Matthew. And Why are you so... You just have to look at but the numbers... Just in the, in the sense of, like, the finest minds of science of, in, in an extraordinarily short amount of time have come up with this vaccine. It's proven that it's working statistically. Why are you so cynical about We have no that? long-term data. We have no long-term data. But we don't have a chance to have long-term data because we, we have this virus... We do. ...killing people, people around the whole no, world. We, no, we don't have the, we don't, we have, we don't have that luxury, surely. So we are still in clinical trials, is what she says, and... You know, she's interrupted by this propagandist, which is probably a dig at that guy. But at the same time, you know, he wasn't exactly nice to her either. And I think this is how most of us were treated if we had any sort of questions or hesitancy around a, a vaccine. And and the thing I really want to highlight in this clip is the finest minds in science 
did an extra had to an extraordinary amount of time had to come up with the vaccine. It's proven that it works statistically, and the the thing that I want to point out is that the finest minds in science, and and we're hearing this on just about every single topic that is in the culture right now. And I think that even though this is related to COVID vaccines, you'll hear the same thing with uh, transgenderism. Um, And if you watch any of the Matt Walsh stuff that he's been covering with Jon Stewart or John Oliver, they've basically said, well, these are the top scientists who say this, as if that suddenly proves, you know, contradictory truths. The question is, where do we actually get this idea from? And it has its roots in a a philosophical system based in Rene Descartes. Um, and, And I'm not the only, I'm not just spouting eloquently. I am you know, bringing in my own authorities here of philosophy that talk about how this trend kind of has emerged. And we're going to go down through history of people who notice this trend from different countries, different backgrounds, all different thinkers. So you've got French Catholics, you got Jewish agnostics, you got all these other ones who are saying that essentially Cartesianism was the reason why we came to this big, huge you know, worshiping of science. So the kind of logic, the idea of scientists becoming the new ruling class is not a recent phenomenon. In her work titled The Human Condition, Hannah Arendt, a Jewish woman and a brilliant philosopher and survivor of the Holocaust, describes the underlying philosophy of the news anchors uh, and the propagandists in that clip. And she says, the radical change in moral standards occurring in the first century of the modern age was inspired by the needs and ideas of its most important group of men, the new scientists. And this is in the context uh, in the previous page where she is outlining how Rene Descartes' doubt and uncertainty ended up leading to this worshiping of science, or not necessarily worship of science, but this transition of elite status from this uh, view of the speculative all the way up to uh, the, the modern age where these scientists are now the ones that are the ruling class or the elites. And when we when you read The Human Condition, this is what that book is about. It starts off in the ancient Greek, and she goes through and she shows you the distinctions between the public and the private and how the language shifted with all that. And eventually she gets up to the modern era and how this has affected our views of what's, what's good and what's bad and all that. So Arendt is discussing the modernity in light of the influence of Descartes. Descartes was a mathematical genius, for those that don't know, and had a significant impact on philosophy and the way we interact with reality and the problems that we have to solve. According to Jacques Maritain, who's another Catholic philosopher, he was a uh, natural law theorist, and he was very, very hard on Descartes, and he was also a Thomist. And you'll see this in Thomistic thought, that a lot of times Thomists have a very hard time with Descartes, especially Catholic Thomists. And what Maritain says is, quote, three men, each for their very different reasons, dominate the modern world and govern all the problems which torment it. A reformer of religion, a reformer of philosophy, and a reformer of morality, Luther, Descartes, and Rousseau. That's from the three reformers, Um, and it's right on the first page, so it's not hard to find. So in America's modern experiment, it's still less than 300 years old. Check me on that math, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. And it has a dominant military and cultural influence in the world. The Protestants of America, or Cartesian Protestants, maybe we could call them, reject their senses. This is the basis of of Cartesian doubt, this radical skepticism of I think, therefore I am. That comes out of, essentially, if I doubt, then I exist, because how could I not exist and doubt? That's the basis of it. So he starts with doubt. So that's the philosophical reformation. 
And then there's the rejection of the Catholic Church, which is the Luther Reformation. And then Rousseau, which brings in relativism, and that's the moral Reformation. We're not going to talk about that one as much, but if you want to learn more about that, we are going into that in our book club with Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. So we do that one every Monday. But in light of the doubting our senses and the Catholic Church, the Protestants in America require some authority. And the authority they adopted during COVID was not the government per se, but objective science, which eventually ended up, because of its relationship with the government, leading Protestants to just not really make a distinction between the two and just following whatever the government said. It didn't matter if it was Fauci. It didn't matter if it was Joe Biden. Whatever it was, the in their mind, they were the same entity. So in light of the COVID, the evangelical magisterium and its cardinals have revealed itself despite its many contradictions. And so I have another clip for you on this, and this is clips of a mashup from a, a creator online that took all these things really appreciate it and uh, i'll make sure to give him credit when the video comes up but basically he puts all these things together and bill gates is right there at the very beginning and there's all these hey it'll stop transmission and then you know we never said that it would stop transmission clips there's been over a 20 to 1 return if you had put that money into an s p 500 and reinvested the dividends you'd come up with something like 17 billion dollars but you think it's 200 billion dollars here yeah you're okay you're not going to you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. These vaccines are highly, highly effective. Vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. They're really, really good against variants. Everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission uh, to other people and allowing society to get back to normal. Get your first shot, and when you're due for your second, get your second shot. Our key goal is to stop the transmission, to get the immunity levels up so that you get almost no, almost no uh, infection going on whatsoever. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized, you're not going to be in an ICU unit, and you're not going to die. If you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. Anyone who is fully vaccinated can participate in indoor and outdoor activities, large or small, without wearing a mask or physical distancing. But what they can't do anymore is prevent transmission. You know, we didn't have vaccines that block transmission. We got vaccines that help you with your health, but they only slightly reduce the transmission. So we need a new, new way of doing the vaccine. The level of virus in the nasopharynx of a person who's vaccinated and infected is the same level as the level of virus in the nasopharynx of an unvaccinated person. Reports from our international colleagues, including Israel, suggest increased risk of severe disease amongst those vaccinated early. And if you look at Israel, mm -hmm. which has always been a month to a month and a half ahead of us, they are seeing a waning of immunity, not only against infection, but against hospitalizations and to some extent death. The booster might actually be an essential part of the primary regimen that people should have. The plan is for every, every adult to get a booster shot. It's uh, clearly one of the best investments uh, I've ever been involved in. So there you go. So now that we have that clip, and you can find all sorts of them, just go on Twitter, search the hashtag Pfizergate, and you'll have tons of you know, clips like that. We have even more queued up that we might get to later. But point is, is that clearly 
uh, there was some misinformation uh, from the government, uh, which is, you know, true for us, but not for them. The authorities, you know, have, have been revealed as liars, and this definitely is an abuse. Uh, we're going to talk about the Nuremberg Codes later on, but they required, in, in there's going to be a theme here of Catholicism, you know, essentially the vaccine was an indulgence that required you to be, uh, in order to remain in communion with society something that didn't violate any denominational doctrine per se. I mean, if you wanted to go the pro-life route and say, you know, the, the fetal cell lines or whatever. But at the end of the day, there wasn't anything that says, you know, my religion says I can't take this thing. And since 99% of us all get vaccines or take drugs that do have those kinds of things in them, I don't think that was a very uh, logical argument. Now, if it, for strategic reasons, it might have been a good reason to take the religious exemption, like if you were a doctor and you had patients that were relying on you. And, you know, I think that there's a, a, a wisdom element there, but it would have made sense for Catholics to be the ones in this context who maybe would have gotten taken advantage of because they kind of, in my opinion, you know, they have a much more higher view of authoritative structures and submission and things like that. But Protestants are traditionally known for the fact that they don't just go with the flow. And so um, if you look at the book that we've been reading in um, The Captive Mind from our previous book club by Sheshwath Miwosh, uh, he outlines that this is not necessarily only specific to, to Catholicism. It could have happened with any denomination, but it's undeniable that you know the, the communists in Poland were definitely mimicking a lot of Catholicism. And so they had icons of Stalin and things like that and candle vigils and all sorts of stuff. But for the Protestant nation to forfeit their autonomy and reason in the name of a materialist creed, follow the science, is pretty unbelievable. I mean, Elon Musk calls these kinds of things, you know, mind viruses. I think he's right. I would add that these viruses come from philosophical mutations, meaning there's this thinker like Rene Descartes who has, has great ideas. The guy started the Cartesian plane. You know, we've all been exposed to his thought because of the influence he had. There's no way he could have thought that you know, down the road, somebody might take his thought and, you know, unknowingly in a lot of ways and, and apply it to transgenderism, which, you know, we'll find out later on. Uh, I'm not the only one who, who sees that connection. Um, so this idea that, you know, over time, a philosophical system might mutate in the same way that a virus does, I think is a helpful analogy because, you know, we're living in it and that's just how we relate these ideas to people. So, you know, this idea of a mind virus is, is actually pretty pretty novel, uh, no pun intended, uh, but meaning that the original version of the philosophy or philosopher may never have intended ill toward anyone or believed that his system would influence people in the ways that it did, but ideas like viruses adapt to each subsequent generation, okay? And, and just like the, the ideas that they've been given passed down from generation to generation, the immunity is passed down from generation to generation, oftentimes through tradition or through religious practice or whatever, but philosophy is that kind of virus that gets in there, and it can undermine any theology, which is why you have to study it. And it's a real shame that so many Christians have abandoned it, which, again, is kind of right in line with the Cartesian uh, thought. In fact, the book that I pulled from, and we'll have descriptions and stuff in the in the actual uh, show notes, but Frederick Copleston even says that it's not fair to even call Cartesianism really a system. It was more of a method of dealing with things. He, he didn't, he wasn't trying to systematize things in the way that other thinkers did, like Aristotle or Plato. 
So we, we move into this next thing, and, and we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on Cartesianism and its influence on Americans, but uh, because I think it's really important for us to understand our philosophical roots and why we think the way that we think. In his book, again, The Captive Mind, Shezwath Miłosz calls communism the new faith. So for our discussion here, we're going we're gonna to call our own government the new magisterium because we're mostly a Protestant nation, and, uh, and I think we've exchanged uh, our autonomy from the Catholic Church to the government magisterium. So given that Descartes' influence is significant in American history, it's not surprising that his philosophy under Protestant conditions would have unforeseen effects, meaning I don't think Descartes planned for this. I don't think he's some diabolical genius. In the same way, Descartes believed that theology was beyond reason and ultimately an appeal to authority. Protestants, or, or revelation, basically. It was beyond human reason. We couldn't just deduce it. So he just basically presupposes it. Protestants have exchanged their autonomy for a new magisterium, the biosecurity state. And uh, Aaron Carty, if you ever stumble upon this, we'd love to have you on the show. But pastors and Christians, knowingly or ignorantly, were complicit in violating the lessons outlined in the Nuremberg Codes, which state the voluntary consent, and you can get this on the uh, U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial History site, and uh, we'll put that link in the notes. But this is important for us. And, you know, none of us were really reading these things until the pandemic happened, which, you know, kind of shows you uh, the, the indication of where we've come. But point one, this is right there at the top of the page. The voluntary consent of the subject is absolutely essential, meaning uh, consent to experimental procedures. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any... Now, before I say this next part, everybody's like, well, yeah, 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 you guys had all that stuff. You you guys were fine. You, did, you had the ability to consent. You had the ability to exercise free power of choice. Nobody was, nobody was, you know putting a gun to your head. Well, let's let's keep reading. So all these things, free choice and consent, have to be there without the intervention of any element of force, which is a pretty broad description. Fraud, deceit. So we should read this like any force, any fraud, any deceit, any duress, any overreaching or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion. So if you get told, hey, if you don't take this, you're going to lose your job. Now, I would really like to talk to somebody who doesn't define that as coercion. Now, they should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get down to the end. The duty and responsibility for ascertaining the quality of the consent rests upon each individual who initiates, directs, or engages in the experiment. It is a personal duty and responsibility which may not be delegated to another with impunity. End quote. So this is important because a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's not like we threw people in ovens. It's not like we threw them in camps, even though there were actual camps. Um, and to, to say that there was no sort of uh, experimentation and emergency authorization is justifying a drug that hasn't been fully vetted because it's an emergency. So just because they have justification for an emergency drug doesn't mean that it's an, not experimental. And when you say you're going to coerce somebody into taking an emergency authorized drug saying, well, you know, you, you got to take this or else you're going to lose your job. That is coercing people. And the reason why we have things like the Nuremberg Codes is so that we don't take advantage or even out of fear, make a moral mistake, which we did. And that, that's, that's unequivocal at this point. 
So you can't read that and say, well, we didn't make any mistakes because that's really insulting to the people that the Nuremberg Codes were supposed to give justice to. Because if if they if they aren't going to be able to protect against anything except for, you know, going into ovens, then, you know, that's that's not fair to their sacrifice in their life. So we, we keep moving on. And so, you know, people will sit here and say, well, you know, I don't know how much of Descartes actually, you know, had an influence on us, especially us evangelicals. It's like, oh, yeah, he did. 100%. So Descartes is deeply entrenched in American identity. Okay. The, the early colonists that began America were heavily influenced by his philosophy, even though they didn't know it, despite never even reading him. Okay, now that doesn't mean not everybody did. Okay, but according to America's philosopher, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French guy, but he's called America's philosopher uh, in uh, the introduction to democracy in America um, because of his impact on American thought. He came over in the 1830s and he traveled all around and he, he wrote a book called uh, Democracy in America, two essays. And the first essay he wrote over the course of five years, and then he wrote the second one after that. So he put the whole book together in a total span of five years. So part one and part two. And in part two, it's really interesting because he clearly had a shift of thought. Uh, he, he basically uh, starts to move into a very philosophical description of America. He writes, Quote, America is thus one of the countries in the world where the precepts of Rene Descartes are at least studied and most widely applied. We need not be surprised by that. Americans do not read the works of Descartes because the state of their society diverts them from speculative study and they follow his maxims because it is this very social state which naturally disposes their minds to adopt them. And for those that have the Penguin Books uh, version, it's page 494. So there you go. So in other words, if you're an American, there is a very high chance your assumptions are aligned with a Cartesian view of the world. In the same way that you believe in the Constitution, even though you probably don't read it on a regular basis, you just it's just kind of the waters you swim in. Um, skepticism, supremacy of the scientific method, and that Christianity should just be presupposed are just a couple of the parallels that we see with uh, Rene Descartes and the uh, American experiment. So... Is it any surprise that given Rene Descartes' system, that he started with doubt, and doubt of the senses and common sense, that Americans would doubt their own experience with the government and COVID-19? Because we had some really, really bizarre things. And if you, if you were following this, you know about mass formation psychosis that was going around, like this idea that people would just completely deny what was going on in front of them just to rationalize behaviors that they normally wouldn't, you know, like wearing a mask before you go to like while you sleep or work out like what like people were doing that all over the place. Just weird stuff, despite the fact that there was at no certainty that that was even doing anything. Um, and yet it, there was enough certainty to morally judge somebody who did or did not. It was just it was just really a, a bizarre time. And then, remember, this happened globally. I mean, we were watching on social media. This happened globally, and and, and we'll get to uh, something uh, later on that, that talks about this, and it's important. In fact, Lindsay, can you actually grab me the uh, Captive Mind book just so I have it ready? Because I don't have that in my notes. But there, there's just a couple of these examples that I personally experienced. So this is me actually talking to people that, I, you know, Christians or whatever. Um, so there was the denial that the vaccine was experimental. Why? Because the magisterium said it was emergency authorized. 
I mean, that, that basically the, the new magisterium, the government said, this is emergency authorized, so we're going to play some, you know, uh, switching around with the terms and meanings of things. But because it's emergency authorized, it's it's totally different kind of drug. It's not experimental. It's, it's emergency, which relative to the people who are getting it, it, it was it was not fully vetted the way that we do other drugs. It was accelerated at the very least. So distracting from the disparity between young and elderly, this was another thing. We saw that in the first clip. You know, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to kill grandma? You know, people always said those kinds of things. We had church newsletters that went out that said, let's wear a mask and don't kill grandma. Well, this obviously implies that if somebody believes that these measures are unconstitutional or irrational and, and a violation of conscience... Here are just a few examples that I personally experienced during the pandemic. Denial that the vaccine was experimental. Why? Because the magisterium said it was emergency authorized. They swapped out experimental for emergency authorization. Now, they may have had justification for that change in terminology because we were in an emergency state, but that words don't change the natures of things. They just change, they, they just change the way we're describing events. And the nature of the vaccine was that it was not fully vetted because it was an emergency context. The whole point, it's like when you're driving on the highway and you've got a speed limit you got to break. It's like, well, the fact that you say you were justified in breaking the speed limit doesn't change the fact that you broke the speed limit. And it was reckless to do it. So, you know, we, we understand this in every other context. But when the government comes in and says, you know, well, it was an emergency authorization. We had to do it. You know, people are like, yeah, you know, we had our World War II moment for this generation. It was absolutely not the fight that they thought it was. The other thing was that the, the oh, just as a side, I mean, you even had people like, I mean, we we had Christmas cards coming in with people bragging about their vaccines. I mean, it, they, it was insane. Um, uh, the, the other one was distracting from the disparity between the young and the elderly. We saw this in the earlier clip. We saw this woman defending facts. I mean, she, she was, and she is totally vindicated now. I mean, people who threw her under the bus should totally apologize to her because imagine if you were that woman there and, and you were being treated that way. I mean, a lot of us probably were, but that was on television and they're, they're making her out to be this lady who wants to kill grandma and doesn't care about the elderly. She was more concerned about what was the wisest decision in the process of what we were going to do. And it wasn't to say that you should not care about the elderly, but this was the tactic that a lot of people used in order to justify their going along with the magisterium. And so Again, in this context, this is the, the new magisterium, the evangelical magisterium. And I, we had people say this. They sent, they sent emails out in churches saying, don't wear masks, you know, or wear masks because, you know, we don't want to kill anybody, as if, as if this was going to be the thing that killed people. And again, the logical question is, okay, well, then during the flu season, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this during every single time there's a sniffle in the children's church? We're just going to wear masks everywhere? The, the, the idea that responsibility lied with the person who was vulnerable was completely thrown out. Um, and, and the people who were trying to take into account the, 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 the common good, not just the good for a few, but the common good, and trying to aim at that, were vilified. Which, again, you can find all these clips, and, and we just forget about them, but this is what happened. Uh, the other one was that people were injured by the vaccine. I know multiple people who experienced vaccine reactions. Everything from permanent nerve damage that they are are not going to recover from. Uh, Brett Weinstein did a, did a great podcast with Lydia McGrew about her experience. Highly recommend. It's on the Dark Horse podcast. Um, and, and then those who got boosters and had uncontrollable chattering of teeth. 
I, I talked to two people totally. They do not know each other. And they both said, described the same thing within 24 hours of getting the booster shot. But did they go and report this to their nurse or their, or their doctor? And then did the doctor put it into the VARS report? Probably not. For those that don't know, this is the next one. The VARS data is unreliable, said the magisterium. Um, you know, if you go into the VARS database, you can do this. I believe it's V-A-E-R-S. And can you check that for me, Lindsay? Just confirm the spelling. Uh, this was unreliable. This is where this is the vaccine reaction adverse reaction event database, and they had sixty percent of all vaccine reactions. Last I checked, were related to co getting co the COVID nineteen vaccine. Now this is an aggregate. This is important to note. You can't just go in there and look at the at the chart and, and assume that this is the Pfizer vaccine. It was uh, when I checked it last. This included Moderna, J and J, and Pfizer. Um, so they, they do change this occasionally. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the way that you can filter the criteria, so just be aware of that, but this was dismissed as being, uh, invalidated because there was such a high awareness of the COVID vaccines, which, which is weird because they said they were totally safe and everything was fine. So, you know, at the end of the day, you went in there and you could see, you can literally see on the chart, all of the vaccines that have ever been done before in the United States and, They've been tracking this data for a long, long time. And the Pfizer, Moderna, and, and Johnson Johnson make up 60% of all vaccine-related injuries in that system. So when we when we go through the, the data and the arguments against it, it was, well, you know, people are just filling this thing out. But when you talk to nurses, they say nobody fill this, fills those things out unless they absolutely have to. So it's not like they're looking to do it. So th there was just a lot of inconsistencies on the VARS data. And again, so you have the system for what? It's a vaccine reaction detection system, and it's not very good. Like you can't actually detect, react. like what would you expect it to do if you actually had this? So, you know, because obviously we put, gave this thing to tons and tons of people. So, you know, when, when, when do we usually see that kind of a, of a, of an event? So the last one is again, the silencing of heretics, right? You know, again, the religious theme of the magisterium coming in and trying to silence people, exiling people, those kinds of things. The government did this too. Uh, there's a podcast with, uh, Joe Rogan and, uh, Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson was mentioned by name by white house officials to try and get his podcast shut down. Um, you know, people losing their jobs. This is a form of persecution, by the way. I mean, the idea that you would lose your livelihood, your insurance, your ability to put food on the table, all of the things that we just assume you can just get in America because it's a quote-unquote free country, people just think, well, what's the big deal? You'll just find another job. I mean, take a look at Dr. Julie Panessi. I mean, she, she was an ethics professor for 20 years. And talk about having, you know, the guts to actually live out what you believe. My gosh. I mean, there were Christian ethics. I don't know if Dr. Julie Panessi is a Christian, but there were Christian. She was out of Canada, for those that don't know. Um, there were Christian professors that didn't even consider the ethical ramifications of this stuff. So, you know, th there are tons and tons of stuff. And it gets even worse when we take a look at, you know, Megan Basham's article from the Daily Wire, which if you're not following her on Twitter, my gosh. Uh, she's she's a she's a spitfire man, and uh, she she wrote this article that I have right here in my hand, pulling a Michael Moles there. You know, I got my my 
in physical in the hand uh, article how the federal government used evangelical leaders to spread covid propaganda to churches and this is a 10 page article talking about how the NIH director Francis Collins uh, had church leadership on his podcast about why Christians ought to obey Christ's command to love their neighbors and get the COVID vaccine and avoid indulging in misinformation. Um, one of the best lines in here is uh, the idea that the uh, from Rick Warren, I believe it was, here, here's what he says. Uh, Once again, Warren and Collins spent their interview jointly lamenting the unlovingness of Christians who question the efficacy of masks specifically framing it as a matter of obedience to Jesus. Wearing a mask is the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what Warren says. Let me just say a word to the priests and pastors out there. Let me double check. Maybe it was Collins. Let's see here. The the purpose-driven life author declared before going on to specifically argue that religious leaders... Okay, so it is Warren. He says, let me just say a word to the priests and pastors and rabbis and other faith leaders. Warren said... This is our job, to deal with these conspiracy issues and things like that. One of the responsibilities of faith leaders is to tell people to trust the science. So again, you have this materialist creed, follow the science, and what happens? The evangelicals just go hand in glove right into what the government wants them to do. And again, keep in mind the context of this is you're going to lose your job. You can't fly. You can't travel. At one point, they were talking about various ways to restrict travel based on your COVID-19 vaccination status. I mean, this this was a level of uh, totalitarianism that hasn't been seen in the United States in, in a long time. Uh, maybe Woodrow Wilson was the earliest that I could, I could find. So if you're a historian guy, let me know if you can find an earlier one. But, you know, this this is just crazy stuff. And then on top of that, the idea that Francis Collins is some sort of, you know, like, ideal Christian leader is just crazy. And I read his Language of God book. I thought it was pretty good. Um, But if there's one thing that seems to be the theme of uh, our Christian experience in 2022, it's that, or in the last four years, is that some of these boomer defenders of the faith um, weren't uh, exactly uh, people we would want to follow as role models. So Collins, uh, he, I mean, this, this is, this is crazy stuff. Uh, in this article, um, I can't remember what year it was written, but it's it's on, behind the paywall uh, for Daily Wire. But Collins has not only, Basham writes, Collins has not only defended experimentation on fetuses obtained by abortion, he has also directed record-level spending toward it. Among the priorities, the NIH has funded under Collins a University Pittsburgh experiment that involved grafting infant scalps onto lab rats, as well as a project that relied on the harvested organs of aborted full-term babies. Some doctors have even charged Collins with giving money to research that required extracting kidneys, uterus, and bladders from living infants. He goes, she goes on, uh, as far as an ally to the LGBTQ plus uh, community, to the most holy of progressive sacred cows, LGBTQ orthodoxy, Collins has been happy to genuflect Having declared himself an ally of the gay and trans movements, he went on to say that he applauds the courage and resilience it takes for LGBTQ individuals to live openly and authentically and is committed to listening, respecting, and supporting them as an advocate. So, I mean, there is there is a, a, a very 
disturbing parallel here. And we didn't even get into the, the Romans 13 stuff. I mean, the craziness around that was, you know, people would, pastors and stuff would go out there and, and claim Romans 13 that if you weren't following these guidelines, they weren't even laws, they were guidelines in a lot of cases, that you were considered to be in violation of Romans 13, and you should really question uh, whether or not you were fit to take communion. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. And then when you pointed out that there were religious exemptions for the religious, meaning it was basically up to the discretion of the pastor, well, then you really had a tough pickle because now the pastor had to really put his put his his beliefs about what was going on on the line. Um, so not only is this unfair to the pastors because the government put them into a difficult position, it just created a ton of chaos. But in the wake of all this, it revealed that the Protestant, or not, I don't want to say Protestant, because I don't think every Protestant denomination handled it exactly the same, but really the big evangelicals, they all had, you know, the, the Rick Warrens and the uh, the the Ed Stetzers of the world, right? They, they joined forces with Francis Collins to pressure people and use social media to guilt them and shame them into getting this thing. All for what? To stop the spread of the vaccine, which is what we saw in the earlier clip, was, you know... It's going to stop. It's going to stop only to find out that it actually didn't. And there's another clip that we have with uh, the guy who broke this story. Uh, Roos uh, from uh, the Netherlands uh, asked this question at, a, I believe it was an EU meeting. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport. The COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. Please watch the video until the end. Voor u, mevrouw Smal, heb ik de volgende vraag waar ik een duidelijk antwoord op wil. And I will speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. A little bit of Schwarzenegger there. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market. If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanisation before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. So there you hear in the uh, clip from, was it Roos? Is that his name? And this was not uh, just merely, you know, the evangelical denominations. I mean, you had Tim Keller, who I believe is uh, more Presbyterian, and then you had even N.T. Wright, who's Anglican. Um, you know, during this uh, interview with Francis Collins and N.T. Wright, uh, they, uh, the NIH director, that's Collins, once again trumpeted the efficacy of cloth masks. The pair, N.T. Wright and Collins, warned against conspiracies, mocking disturbing examples of churches that continued meeting because they thought the devil can't get into my church or Jesus is my vaccines. Lest anyone wonder whether Wright experienced some pause or 
over lending his reputation as a deep Christian thinker to Caesar's agent, the friends finished with a guitar duet. So um, I think at this point, it's a pretty good idea to kind of transition to how uh, eerie this is, scary this is uh, in, in comparison to the way that other totalitarian regimes have come in and intimidated people when they went against the government uh, mandates. Um, and so we read in, in Shezwath Miwosh here um, that uh, he says this, he says, uh, and this was in Poland in 1951 after the communists came in and uh, took over Poland. Um, and it says, or at least that's when the book was was published. Um, so I'm pretty sure the communists would have come in at a different time. But it says here, it would be an act of unforgivable carelessness, for example, to close the churches suddenly and prohibit all religious practice. Carelessness on behalf of the communist government, because if he did this, he'd be in big trouble. Instead, the communists should try to split the church in two. Part of the clergy must be compromised as reactionaries and foreign agents, a rather easy task given the utterly conservative mentality of many priests. The other part must be bound to the state as closely as the Orthodox Church is in Russia, so that it becomes a tool of the government and they can play guitar duets together after mocking the other Christian. I'm just kidding, I added that part in there. So that it becomes a tool of the government, a completely submissive church, one that may on occasion collaborate with the security police, loses authority in the eyes of the pious. Such a church can be preserved for decades until the moment when it dies a natural death due to the lack of adherence. So there are measures that can be taken, even against the church, this last stronghold of opposition. And one of the things that we saw in this whole pandemic was how quick and eager, and Megan Basham, thank you if you watch this, I, I don't know if you will, but thank you for your work, outlines this and shows how evangelicals were just very quick, evangelical leaders were very quick to be concerned about their public perception on the issue and whether or not they would be uh, condemned for questioning the science to the point at which they even violated, in some regards, their own uh, 39 articles. I mean, you, you had, for the Anglicans at least, in um, on the power of civil magistrates, it says explicitly, the power, and this is in an article I wrote on solomonscorner.com, you can check it out, uh, Protect the Faith, Authoritarianism in the Church, Part 1. This was during the COVID pandemic. Um, seeing these things in real time, uh, you know, this was one of the things that was written. The Anglican Church appears to have been aware of such manipulation and its dangers. In Article 37, it states, quote, the power of the civil magistrate extendeth to all men, as well clergy as laity, in all things temporal, but hath no authority in things purely spiritual. Now, when Sejwath Miwosh says that the biggest mistake that the the uh, communists could make in Poland was to shut down all of the churches. We did that globally. I mean, this is a pretty phenomenal accomplishment for governments that they were able to shuffle people into their homes, tell them not to go and take their sacred act. And if this does not confirm that Christianity as a whole has now elevated governments that are mostly secular to a position of elevation that's above the theological, which by definition, the theological should transcend. The government should not transcend the transcendent. So by definition, they can say all they want that they don't think that the government is more important than the church, 
but we judge them based on their actions, not on their words. And what we did as a, as a global community of Christians was that we shut down our churches because we were afraid of, of, of a virus at a time when it was scary. There's no doubt. I mean, my position on COVID changed multiple times throughout the whole thing as far as its severity and danger. And everybody was really operating in uncertainty. But people stayed closed well beyond what they should have. And they withheld things that they believed to have spiritual power precisely for things like this. So even if you don't believe in transubstantiation, you don't believe in real presence of the communion, you don't believe in anything supernatural about this, just from the standpoint that solitary confinement is a form of torture, the churches just let everybody go into their homes. I heard stories of people becoming alcoholics because they had nobody to talk to when they were working from home. Their work was their social community. And unfortunately, Christians tend to forget sometimes that their actions and their beliefs actually do have a negative impact on the unbeliever, who is, by the way, according to our traditions, condemned to hell. And so when, when persecution comes, when, when devastation comes, that should be something that Christians don't desire, because even though they might say, well, that's when the church thrives, which I think is an erroneous kind of discussion point anyway, but that's for a different time. At the end of the day, this is a really, really dangerous idea because people who don't have God, who don't have access to, to, to the Holy Spirit or any of the transcendent things of life during dark times, if we lose them, we lose them forever. And so some, the idea that the most loving thing that you could do is to just go along with what anybody who lived in a communist regime would say is totalitarian in nature uh, is very antithetical to, um, to living according to your conscience. But again, let's understand why this is happening. Is it really a surprise that given the pragmatic emphasis both Amer the American spirit and Cartesian methods share, that this kind of thing would happen? Both of them break from the past, Reformation and, and uh, philosophical uh, breaking from the past. Carte Descartes didn't want to do Aristotle stuff. He wanted to come up with his own method. Protestants reformed from, from the Catholic Church. Both the, and Americans broke away from England. Both desire clarity and exactness in their work. Both do not care much for history, book learning, or speculation. The details that you that I'm listing, you can find in Frederick Copleston's History of Philosophy, Volume 4, and I highly recommend, even if you're not Catholic. I'm not Catholic. I'm Anglican. Um, but it is an excellent book. It summarizes things really well, especially on Marxism. He's the best I've found on Marxism as far as understanding it because it's a real sucky philosophy, and it's hard to understand because it doesn't make any sense. So you know he's good if he can explain stuff that doesn't make sense. So the point is, is that the separation that Descartes made between human reason, though, and theology is really vital for our time because that parallels a lot of what Christianity does in America. So he says, Copleson writes, For the most part, Descartes avoided discussion of purely theological matters. His point of view was that the road to heaven is as open to the ignorant as to the learned, and that revealed mysteries transcend the comprehension of the human mind. Frederick Copleston, History of Philosophy, page 66. During his life, Descartes' brothers, and this is not the quote anymore, held Aristotle in high regard. This was a problem for Descartes. He didn't like it. He believed that their loyalty was misplaced, and as a result, he, quote, resolved to rely on his own reason, not authority. Now, if that doesn't sound Protestant, then, you know, you're probably Catholic. The spirit of this is very Protestant, which is probably why Jacques Maritain 
another great philosopher lumps Descartes in with Luther and Rousseau, like we read earlier in the quote. Now, I grew up Protestant. I still am Protestant. Anglicans are still Protestant. And I can remember being taught that just because someone is wearing a suit and collar doesn't mean you have to listen to them. You need to know your own reason for believing is what my dad and my mom would would tell us. And this is something that, you know, you got to give to your kids too. Because even if you're in the Catholic Church, not all the Catholic people are right. They don't have everything going the right way. So you can't just listen to somebody because they happen to be in a position of authority. You still have to understand it in light of the Catholic doctrines that you hold dear. Obviously, this is the case with a lot of trad Catholics on Twitter talking about Pope Francis. So the fact that so many evangelicals exchange this valuable Cartesian principle, the idea of autonomy, and again, I think it's valuable, for a government magisterium is really, really weird. In one sense, we retained the ideas of pragmatism and that philosophical speculation is worthless, it doesn't make any bread, to quote William James, and exchange their rational autonomy for a materialistic and secular magisterium, i.e., the evangelical magisterium. But it's not just the dead guys that are digging up Descartes' philosophical ideas and mapping them onto our cultural experience or political problems. Dr. Carl Truman, who is uh, featured in uh, What is a Woman documentary, he's got a book called The Rise and uh, Triumph of the Modern Self. He also connects Descartes' underlying philosophy with the sexual revolution that we're seeing happen around transgenderism and, and homosexuality. Truman writes, While it might seem far-fetched to connect, say, Descartes' grounding of certainty in his consciousness of his own doubting to the claims of contemporary transgender activists that sex and gender are separable, in fact, both represent a psychological approach to reality. How the world moves from one to the other is a long, complicated story, but the two are connected, meaning Cartesianism is connected to the gender dysphoria phenomenon that we are seeing in the United States right now. So philosophy may not make any bread, but it definitely can make people crazy. In fact, my professor used to say, Dr. Brian Huffling, who just came on the podcast yesterday, would uh, would say, you know, philosophy is the only profession that you can uh, that you can be you can deny the existence of the external world and still have a job at the uh, at the university. Of course, no, that's that's definitely not the only profession. Uh, you can deny a lot of things now. Uh, but let's qualify some things real quick before we, we, we go beyond Descartes. Descartes is not some evil genius, as I said earlier, who constructed a diabolical psyop from ages past uh, to see a country yet to be formed eventually have its citizens question their gender and experiment on its populations with vaccines and technology. But that doesn't mean that his influence is not part of the problem. Any more than Aristotle's or the Bible statements on slavery weren't in some way an inspiration for continuing the practice of it. I'm, I'm just pointing out similarities between Descartes' beliefs and the beliefs of American evangelicals. There are parallels there, and I think it's important for us to understand that if this philosophy, as Tocqueville says, was baked into the American experiment, it logically follows that this would influence generations of evangelicals who came out of the American Protestant experiment. So the catalyst that really pushed us over the edge, though, that really ended up causing us to become... Uh, an evangelical magisterium. It was not just COVID. It was also technology. And so let me read you this quote that precedes that scary quote that Miwosh says about how you can't shut down the churches. He says, 
Technology and the way of life it produces undermines Christianity far more effectively than do violent measures. And he says, right after that, that the dangerous thing for communists to do would be to shut down all of the churches at once, because otherwise that would galvanize them and they would resist. That did not happen, and that should terrify all of us, because we have the survivors. Communism isn't just a theory. We know what it looks like. We've seen it in action, and people came and warned us about it, and now the global elites that we have in place now have accomplished things that even Stalin wasn't able to accomplish. So not too long ago, uh, about four or five years ago, before all this went down, I asked a question on my Facebook profile, uh, which no longer exists. Uh, there is a Solomon's Corner one, but mine is no longer there. Uh, it was, uh, for those that don't know, I was an athlete back in the day um, and had accrued a, a decent following. So I wasn't just, you know, shouting this out to, you know, a, a couple of five or six people. Um, I asked this question, you know, why do you go to church? Because I noticed this trend that individuals were were debating about with themselves, not arguing with, you know, their friends or their family, but why they should go to church when they could just stream it. And when we were, this was before we had joined the Anglican Church, we were going to these churches and they all had multi-campuses and they were growing. I mean, their budgets were huge. They had massive industry. They had automations for all their technology. You know, you'd, you'd sign up and you'd get 50 different newsletters like on your birthday. Uh, you know, it's that kind of thing where you're like, wow, this is really cool, but you know that they don't really know who you are. They just got a robot doing their job for them. Um, and so you, you end up with this experience of like, well, if I can just watch this uh, from my bed, why should I even care? In fact, one experience, we went to a multi-campus, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this. I just think it's weird. I, can't, I, I think it's, it's another form of mass formation psychosis. You know, if you're going to church, you should at least be wanting to meet other people that believe in God. And uh, you go there, and the, the lights are dimmed, and, and we, we go and we sit down in the chairs, and the associate pastor comes out, he gives his announcements, and then he says, all right, now we're going to hear from, like, Pastor Greg or something like that. And he walks off the stage, and a screen comes down, and all of a sudden they, they're they're streaming him from another campus somewhere else in the the city. This this happened as well in Charlotte when I was in seminary. We went to another church. I think it was Transformation Church. They had a satellite campus, and you think, oh, okay, well, we'll go there, and we'll hear from the pastor who runs that church. Nope. Darwin Gray streamed in, made sure that everybody was going to get a, a, a taste of the, of the Darwin Gray message, you know, so they could marinate on it, um, you know. No, no, no shade, by the way. Derwin Gray is a nice guy. Um, but anyway, so, you know, at the end of the day, people were kind of debating this. And it got me wondering, as uh, someone who grew up in the Baptist church, you know, like, well, why should we even go? You know, if, if ultimately we go there for an inspirational message, then what is the reason for it? So that's why I asked this question. And I had different denominations come in. It was great. Some of them PhDs, some of them masters, you know, all different kind of stuff. Exactly the kind of response you got. And, and even just, you know, lay people. And I got everything from the Bible says so, so you have to obey the Bible, to I don't think it matters. I watch church from my bed every Sunday morning, and, and that's, my, that's my church. And, and that was kind of the thing that I was, I was trying to discern out of this question, was, well, then why should you go? And there was a Catholic on there, 
who uh, was the only one who responded, but her response was the unique one that said, well, I, I go there because I have a role to play in the service and I can't get the sacraments, the Eucharist, if I stay home. I have to go to church because the, the priest is going to bless this thing and and it's it's going to give me the, the spiritual food that I need to live the Christian life. Now, regardless of whether or not that's theologically accurate, obviously, as I just said, you know, there's a variety of views on communion that you can you can take. Um, but the the issue with this particular response was you can see that there are denominations that have built into their theology a defense against technology's subversion on their religion. And because of this technology, because everybody was being conditioned to just watch from their beds, it made it very easy for COVID to catalyze the church into a state of dormancy that even the communists would not be able to accomplish, which is Miwosh's whole point. He's saying, you know, technology is really bad. It's actually worse than like going and stealing people out of their beds at night and throwing them in the in the in the concentration camps. But you know, that's why the communists have to move slowly through the church. They have to move slowly. And he has early on in this quote, he says in this book, he talks about communists who join the Catholics in order to. Um, in order to uh, make sure that there's some built-in authority and, and ambiguity between the government and the church. He says, Certain practicing Catholics serve even in the security police and suspend their Catholicism in executing their inhumane work. Others, trying to maintain a Christian community in the bosom of the new faith, that's capital N, capital F, uh, that's communism, come out publicly as Catholics. So members of the new faith come out publicly as Catholics. They often succeed in preserving Catholic institutions because the Marxists, or dialecticians, are ready to accept so-called progressive and patriotic Catholics who comply in political matters. The rulers tolerate such Catholics as a temporary and necessary evil, reasoning that the stage has not yet arrived at which one can utterly wipe out religion and that it is better to deal with accommodating bigots rather than refractory ones. The progressive Catholics are, however, conscious of being relegated to a not particularly honorable place, that of shamans or witch doctors from savage tribes whom one humors until one can dress them in trousers and send them to school. They appear in various state spectacles and are even sent abroad as shining testimonials to the center's tolerance toward uncivilized races. One can compare their function to that of a noble savage imported to the metropolis by colonial powers for state occasions. Their defense against total degradation is metaphysical ketman, or the idea that you believe something on the inside that challenges the authorities on the outside of your body. These Christians swindle the devil who thinks he is swindling them, but the devil knows what these Christians think and is satisfied. What holds for such Catholics can be applied to members of other religions as well as to persons outside any denomination. It's almost like he knew that us Protestants were going to just sit there and say, well, we're not Catholic, so, you know, we're good. Well, COVID kind of proved that wrong, didn't it? So we keep going uh, through this, and and we, we find ourselves in this very weird time because, you know, people would say, well, the Bible says so, and 
you know, I'm a kind of Catholic. But the problem is, is that we have allowed this modernity to come in and influence this, this Cartesian system to come in and say, basically, that we can't know reality, and so we need somebody else to come in and tell us. You know, Rene Descartes had the Catholic magisterium to tell him things on transcendent matters, but the Protestants could have handled their own individual parishes or their own individual instances of, of campuses and stuff, and some of them did. John MacArthur, you know, I'm not a big fan of his views on natural law, but you got to give props to the person where, they, where they're due, just like you're going to look at some of these Catholics, you're going to say, man, you guys are doing a good job. John MacArthur the same way, standing strong and, and trying not to um, bend the knee because of his understanding that, you know, we have to be, uh, first and foremost, serving God. We honor God, not man. And the idea that they would tell us to violate a commandment in the Bible, because again, you don't have to have the view of transubstantiation in order to say, you know, the government can't tell me not to do this. You do have a sacred text that tells you not to forsake the the assembly of the brethren. The idea that I'm trying to get across is that when you do have a liturgy, the purpose of it is to build a habit into somebody, even if they don't have the Bible. And so, yes, if everybody has the rational capabilities of John MacArthur, then yeah, maybe a lot of Protestants would actually not you know, allow the government to come in and say, hey, you got to stop doing communion, you got to stop singing songs, you got to stop doing this. Oh, and by the way, we're going to open strip clubs and casinos and stuff because those are different. We need to make sure that people have a way that they can, you know, relax and de-stress. And so the, the idea of the Catholic's response struck me because I had a suspicion that there was growing apathy among Christians and that churches would boast of their attendance. But when you looked further, you would discover that what many were saying was attendance was attending online. What does that even mean? The proper phrase would be watching. They didn't go anywhere, nor did they participate in the service. In contrast to her Protestant brothers and sisters, the Catholic's response to my question on Facebook demonstrated a belief, whether or true or false, that the church was not merely listening to their sermons. They were not just going there and passively participating. They are an active member of the service. And so the COVID pandemic, I think, marked a shift in the psyche of Americans that few recognize or respect. This is especially true of our clergy, Protestant and Catholic. In our nation, in a single moment, the religious world locked their doors, suspended religious practice, and demonstrated that their time without an official magisterium was over because ultimately this magisterium was able to accomplish what even the communist magisterium was not, which was shutting down all the churches. I appreciate you guys listening in. I'm Daniel Roberts, Solomon's Corner. Keep thinking.